Support for this podcast comes from PayPal. Small business owner, PayPal QR codes are the safe and easy payment option. It's all the security PayPal is known for online, in person. Cash only, QR codes allow you to accept credit or debit with everyday low fees. No additional hardware or software needed. Use the app to generate your unique QR code. Customers scan your code with their PayPal app to pay you. Learn more at paypal.com slash us slash get QR code. This is episode number 58 with our guest, Kevin Cruz. Welcome to the Hidden Entrepreneur Show. My name is Josh Carey. You want in on a little secret? I was in hiding for 40 years. Yeah, I was hiding every part of myself in every situation. And I can tell you one thing, hiding sucks. I'm now on a mission to help extraordinary people like yourself rediscover the world around you, connect beautifully with others, and excel tremendously in all you set out to do. Join in. It's The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Hey there, guys. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. You're tuned right into The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. I am your host, Josh Carey. Our guest today has been in pursuit of the American dream for quite some time, having started his first company when he was just 22 years old. My goodness, if I only began to tell you what I was doing at that (laughs) age, he went on to build and sell several multi-million dollar technology companies, wow, winning both Inc. 500 and Best Place to Work awards along the way. Just a little mild achievement, I would say. He's also the author of several books, including the New York Times bestseller, We, How to Increase Performance and Profits Through Full Engagement. To make matters even better, he is a Forbes leadership columnist and was named to the top 100 business thought leaders list by Trust Across America. There is so much here we are going to unravel and dissect. Please help me welcome our guest. It's Kevin Cruz. What's going on, Kevin? Josh, I, I, someone needs to give you a shorter bio. Like, that was ridiculous. <laughs> no one wants to hear all that. <laughs> Don't they? I want to hear all that. But I know exactly what you mean. And on that front, we started, we started talking off air about some of these titles and awards, including the, the New York Times bestseller, what, is, what does that actually mean, and what does it mean to you? Yeah, well, you know, that, that book is um, over 10 years old now. And before I got the New York Times bestseller, uh, I, you know, I didn't know how it worked. I didn't, and I thought it was important as I was starting out at that time trying to build uh, an audience of readers. I wanted to, to do, you know, speeches, all this kind of stuff. And... Um, What most people don't realize is that New York Times list, it's a curated list. So it starts with, in general, if you can sell about 15,000 books in a week, you should have a chance to make the list. But they routinely put books, usually written by New York Times journalists, um, on the list that aren't selling that many copies. And they routinely reject books that sell way more than 15,000 copies a week 
because they don't like the, the, the subject or the background of the author or if it, they're an independent publisher, they, they're sort of biased against them. And uh, it's, you know, I have no, um, they can do what they want. Like I, I'm not hating on them, it's just the reality. It's, you know, they've talked about how, what goes into that list. And it's not an automatic thing. And so, first of all, you know, that's, I, I suggest to people, you know, just don't worry about making that list because it's out of your control. You know, you, you sell as many books, you help as many people as you can, and then whatever happens, happens. You can't, you can't force it on that, uh, on that list. But, but even beyond that, I mean, I thought my world was going to change when I got that label and nothing changed. Um, when, when I hit the list, I got two calls from speaking bureaus, all of two. One, I called them back and they never took my call or returned the call. So that left one. And they said, and they've got some very big name speakers they're representing even today. And they said, well, we want to represent you, but it has to be exclusive. You're not allowed to work with any other bureaus. It's got to be through us for a year. And I thought, well, no one else is even calling me. So what have I got to lose? Sure, you guys can represent me. And I'm thinking, here come these big speeches. I'm going to be on the road living the dream. And in one year, they booked me um, one $7,000 speech uh, in Vancouver, which is a very nice place, although it's a very long trip from Philadelphia. And that was it. Uh, so literally, I make the list. I get one speaking bureau who gets me one speech in 12 months. Um, I did not get any increase in any other consulting, coaching speeches or, or whatever volume. And um, the only thing, you and I talked a little bit about this. It, look, it's, a, it's kind of an ego thing. Like a third party has said, I sold a lot of books for a week. Um, the only thing that I think it, it is an advantage for me is it helps to open doors. So for, you know, that was 10 years ago. I've done several other books. And when I want to interview someone, I think they're more likely to say yes to, to me asking them some questions if they know I'm a New York Times bestselling author as opposed to just an author. Um, but other than that, I don't, I mean, I, it's never gotten me anything. And so, and I think also, Josh, like it was this way 10 years ago, but it's really this way now. So many authors, independent authors, sort of spike their sales on Amazon for one day. So they become the number one best-selling book in, you know, business consulting for dogs that have three legs or whatever, right? It's all these yeah. levels down. Yeah. And then they're like, I am a best-selling author. So everybody says they're a best-selling author. And I think the general reader, I mean, it's just a blur. It's like, oh yeah, they're all best-selling authors. Let me look at the title cover and I'll buy it or not buy it. So that's, that's kind of my rant on, the, on the, that label. I love it. So you found yourself embracing this genre or niche of leadership, right? That's become your focus among maybe yeah. uh, some, some others. Yeah. So you say that uh, we are all leaders and this is true in and out of the office, in and out of your role or your position. Tell me about that. Yeah, so th that's sort of like the premise. Um, the title Great Leaders Have No Rules is from one chapter, but the real premise is that I believe leadership is a superpower. And, and I say that because leadership, if you boil it down, it's, it's about influence. I've asked John Maxwell, leadership in a word. He says, easy, influence. I've asked Ken Blanchard, what's leadership in a word? Easy, influence. 
when you realize it's about influence, you, re you realize it, it's like the, the concentric circles where it starts with self-leadership. How are you leading yourself? How are you influencing yourself for health, wealth, love, whatever? Uh, it, and then how are you influencing those around you, your kids, your spouse, your friends, your community? And then of course at work, that's how most people think of leadership. How are you influencing your team members and, and those around you? And so when you realize that leadership is, it starts with the self and it's all about maximizing influence, you know, then you're like, wow, if I can really nail leadership, my life will change. I mean, other people's lives will change. It's inevitable. So that's what kind of got me. Uh, and I used to be a horrible leader. That's really why I latched onto it is, is my first companies crashed and burned. I mean, I didn't know how to lead. I didn't understand the power of leadership. I wasn't very mindful of it. Um, but as I've become a stronger leader, then the businesses have done better and better, you know, over now 30 years. Wow. I want to dig deeper into, I love the concept of it all starts with leading yourself first. And I want to take this out of the workplace. Like you said, I have two adorable children, a five-year-old daughter, three-year-old son, that I always give shout outs to because really <laughs> they're responsible whether they know it or not today for helping me become the person I am and continue to be. And I, I want to see how I can apply this whole leadership aspect that you're talking about leadership first to, to my family, to my environment, and then see it grow from there. So you, you, you started talking about this. Is it about uh, being the healthiest you can be physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and going from there? Is that how you lead yourself? Well, so, so in terms of, you know, leading yourself, it's, it is definitely, um, uh, you know, putting your best self out there. But you said, let's start with family. And that's where you can really see the impact and yeah. why I say you're leading whether you want to or not, because you're influencing. Correct. You know, I talk about um, in the book, they did these studies and, and this gets a lot of parents mad. Uh, I get, I get hate mail on this, but there's good research that shows families who, who eat dinner four nights a week or more with their teenage kids those teenagers are less likely to experiment with, with drinking and drugs. They're less likely to um, uh, uh, have risky sexual practices. They're less likely to drop out of school, like all these negative things. But that, well, what's the flip side? If you're not having dinner with your teenagers four nights or more, they are more likely to do drugs. They're more likely to be sexually promiscuous. They're more likely to have struggling in school. So you're leading in one direction or not. Most people think that like leadership is when I take action and do this. And if I choose not to, I choose not to. But that's called this, the bystander effect. Yeah. You know, if, if, uh, if you're in a school and there's a bully, you could lead and say, hey, stop doing that. That's not cool. And research shows that bully is less likely to, to, to do it again. But if you choose to say nothing, if you act in the form of silence, I am, I am choosing to be silent, you're influencing the bully to keep doing it. Mm. So you're influencing no matter what. And so at home, you need to think about, okay, and again, there's no judgment. You know, nobody's perfect. I'm right. a single dad, three kids. I'm not perfect. But you have to realize 
you know, if you're home for dinner, as an example, there's a positive effect. If you're not, there's a negative influence on that. And there's all these other, other ways that you influence, you know, your kids, your spouse, et cetera. Mm. Uh, you have these 10 contrarian principles. Great word. I've, I've, I've always known the word. I'm like, let me Google this. What exactly does contrarian right. mean, right? I'm like, oh, I think I know what it means, but what does it mean? It means against popular belief. So you have these 10 contrarian principles of leadership that you debunk. And um, I want to go through just one of them now, and then I want to dig into your childhood and upbringing, because I know from our brief chat, it's fascinating. <laughs> and, um, it's helpful for everybody listening. But first, one of the principles you debunk in the book, Great Leaders Have No Rules, I love this one. Be likable, not liked. That's something you can really sit with for a minute. Be likable, but not liked. Yeah. So, Josh, I knew you'd pick this one out because of all the work you're doing around self-worth, self-identity, and all of this. Like, that's exactly the heart of this, uh, of this <laughs> chapter. And this was my, one of my, well, probably my greatest failing through most of my leadership journey. So, for the longest time, I had a need to be liked. We all want to be liked. Like, hey, it's, it's good to be liked. That's but my story. Yeah. Yeah. I had a need to be liked. And, and as you know, and as you talk about, you know, this comes from a need for external validation. That usually comes, you know, from other psychological things where we have low self-worth or our personality style, we're seeking validation. Now, when you need to be liked, mm. that's not healthy. So all of a sudden, you're going along with a crowd that you shouldn't be, or you don't want to stand out and do unique, great, different things because you're afraid of, of, of rejection. As a leader at work, it's really a big problem. Because for example, being someone who, who had this need to be liked, you know, I was like, I was the popular boss, I was everybody's friend, and, and I sold it to myself as like, oh, you know, I'm not the boss, we're just, we're just in different roles around here, we're all equals, I'm a modern young hip boss, right? Okay, here's the problem with that, one, slow decision making. So if you're trying to make a decision to grow your business and do something different, when you got 50 people in your company in the early days, I'd have to like, what's the decision that everybody's going to agree with? Cause I don't want anybody to be mad at me, right? Wow. It's impossible. Yeah. And it takes like six months. It's like, what is going on here? The second thing is you withhold feedback to others. So if you were, if you reported to me and I don't know, you were coming in late five days in a row and your people are like, what's going on with Josh? Is something's going on. I'd be like, you know what? I need to talk to him about that. Like he can't be coming in late five days in a row. Something's going on. I got to talk to him about it, but I don't want to bum him out. I don't want to make him mad at me. He and I go way back. I went to his wedding. Ah, oh, this is so awkward. You know what? I'll just jot a note and talk to him at his annual performance review because it's only 10 months away, you know? <laughs> so you just withhold this feedback. And so what I later learned was by, by some great, um, you know, some great books, Brene Brown's work from some personality theory. I found out I'm high in agreeableness, all this kind of stuff. It's like, hey, people want feedback. I'm there. They don't need another friend. They need a leader. They need someone who's going to grow the company and they need someone who's going to help them to grow in their career. If I don't tell you anything about your performance for a month, you're just thinking like, 
does Kevin even care about me? Am I even on his radar or is he checked out? Why isn't he helping me? Why isn't he coaching me to my greatness? He's not telling me anything. Mm. All that time I was just withholding feedback because I didn't have the courage to be disliked, to, 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 to say it at like it really was. So that whole idea is, look, don't be a jerk, like be likable, but be unattached to whether you are actually liked or not. And you made such a great point within that, which is while you think you are holding it back because you don't want to rock the boat or cause any conflict, the other person needs you to give that feedback. So you're doing a huge disservice and you are not going to be disliked. That's the whole humor and irony through all this. You're actually going to improve the connection. The relationship's going to be stronger than ever before. Literally, right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow, so much. So many good things here. I want to put this list aside for a minute. And like I promised, go back to, I got to know all about this. I mean, um, we're going to see along the way, you bought and sold uh, multi-million dollar companies. Really cool. I'm always intrigued on, you know, what traits and abilities led up to that. You also admittedly failed over and over and over again in companies, your companies, from hero to zero, as that silly saying goes, <laughs> right? So let's go back to Kevin Cruz at the beginning. Help us see that picture. What was life like growing up for you, Kevin Cruz, as a young child? Well, yeah, and, and it's, I'm glad you asked because I, I literally remember the day that my life changed and, and I, be, I started self-leadership and decided to become an entrepreneur. I was about 10 years old and, you know, my father uh, had his own dreams to be an entrepreneur and he tried some things that didn't work out and then he actually bought a, a business, made pool tables of all things. And um, I could tell, I knew things weren't going well. Uh, there were a lot of signs of that, but I didn't realize how bad they were. And it, I was, I grew up in Southern California. So it was a sunny day. I'm tossing an orange Nerf football with my friend Roy in the front lawn. This Corvette comes pulling up to the curb and we weren't dirt poor, but there were no Corvettes in our neighborhood. Let's put it this way. And um, we thought, oh, this guy must be lost. Right. And a uh, big guy gets out and I'm thinking he's going to ask for directions dark suit, tall, he's wearing mirrored sunglasses like, you know, cops like to wear. And this is a weird one. He only had one arm. His other sleeve was like pinned up. So now I'm a 10 year old boy. This guy comes out of this car. It's like, to me, he was like a villain out of a James Bond movie, right? You know, it's like today I wouldn't think anything of it, but it was crazy then. And he walks up and he says, um, does, does John Cruz live here? That's my dad. And I said, yeah. And he said, is he home? I said, no. And then he leans way in. I'm like looking at my reflection in his glasses. And he says, are you sure he's not home? Mm. No, he's not home. Right. And then he like juts his business card at me. He's like, tell him to call me. He had better call me. And that night my dad comes home and he's just like having a cup of coffee sitting at the table by himself. And I tell him about the scary one-armed man, give him the card. And he just tosses the card down. He doesn't say anything. I'm like, dad, like, what is going on? And he said, um, Oh, he said, uh, we're out of business. They want money. He's looking for money. And I said, uh, you going to call him? And he says, no. And I said, well, aren't you scared? And he says, I'm not scared because there's nothing left for them to take. 
Mm. And that's when I realized that my dad had lost everything through this business. And within a couple of months or so, we would literally move out of the house and go rent on the other side of uh, town. But that night, uh, Josh, that was um, the night I had this little red journal and I just scrawled in it. I said, I don't care what it takes but when I grow up, I'm going to have a lot of money. And it's kind of a funny saying, you know, but it, uh, it wasn't about like greed is good. I'm going to have a sports car and all that. It was about, I am never going to have a one-armed man throw me out of my house again. You know? So, and, and that was literally um, before that day. I mean, it sounds weird, but I mean, I was uh, drinking whiskey and getting high in the third grade, the fourth grade. I had older sisters uh, that were, doing those things and worse and we're running away. And, uh, I probably would have pursued their, their footsteps. Um, they're older and turned out fine. So it's a, it's a happy story. But, um, but that day, like that one, our man, I, it was it. I mean, I changed my friends. I became a high B straight A student, um, became the first kid in my extended family, first person in my extended family to go to college, work my way through college. And it, and it really was, from being age 10 on that day into my twenties that I learned self-leadership. You know, how do you, how do I, how do I uh, get the focus and the attention and the work ethic and the, the goals and the purpose to really sort of break off of a path that wasn't going in the right direction and stay on one that was going in a good direction. So, I mean, most entrepreneurs, I don't think they can really, don't really know why they're an entrepreneur, but I mean, I knew at age 10, this, I had to be in order to just get some financial independence. Wow. If I could, I want to go um, back even further, dissect a little something you brought up. If I, if I heard this all correctly. So at 10 is when the, uh, the one-armed man yes. entered, <laughs> and, and things changed in that direction. But you said prior for at least a year or two before 10 you were already engaged in the lifestyle of drugs and alcohol? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, and I don't know, how old are you in like third grade? But I mean, yeah, that was- nine, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really when, uh, when it would be. And, I, and uh, it was, I mean, <laughs> it sounds extreme, although this was California in the 70s. So I don't know how <laughs> extreme it really was. Uh, but like, again, having lived it, it didn't seem like a big deal. But basically me and my, you know, druggy friends- we would know we all had them. whose parents were the drug dealers and whose parents were away for the weekends. So we just go steal their drugs out of the bedroom or whatever wow. it was, um, or the, the druggy boyfriend of the neighbor girl. And so when yeah. he was in with his girlfriend, we'd jump into his van and raid his van or whatever. Um, wow. So yeah, that was all at a pretty young age. I mean, when my friends started experimenting with stuff in college, it was like, ah, oh, you guys are like 10 years too late. <laughs> <laughs> you college kids today. You college kids. <laughs> wow. So what were you now going, now you're on the straight and narrow path here. What were you going to college to pursue, right? Well, I, I didn't know. I mean, I, I um, had a, a great teacher in high school who said, listen, you should go to college. It's a good thing to get your degree and, uh, you know, work, go to a college that you can work your way through, get some scholarships or whatever. And I did that. And I graduated with a, an economics and history degree from a, a state school, Rutgers in New Jersey. But oh, I've never, my never home used state. Love it. Oh, there you go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So, um, but, but I never used, I mean, I never directly used those degrees. I think it's good. Like history taught me 
analysis and how to write. You know, economics taught me about supply and demand and econ 101 and how the world works a little bit, but I never really used it in my jobs, careers, whatever. So at 22, it is said that you started your, your, first, your first company. What was yeah. that company? So that company, you know, graduated from, from college and a college friend, uh, Wayne, we, we immediately started our first business and we had no money, uh, but I had a credit card. And uh, so it, it's funny, I didn't have enough money for both an office and an apartment. And back then, like working from home wasn't cool. Like nobody did. This is 30 years ago. And so I did the logical thing and I got the office and, and I literally, there was this office, um, office condos, like, you know, a little, you know, a whole bunch of little buildings. And I literally knocked on every door and asked every person, Hey, do you got like a spare office? You'd rent me cheap every month. Wow. And there was an accounting firm that had this, you know, two story building and I don't know, maybe 20 workers there. And they're like, Matter of fact, we do have a little 10 by 10 office upstairs. We'll, we'll, we'll rent you cheap. Now, what they didn't know is that I lived there. So for a year, I worked 365 straight days, holidays, weekends, birthday. And every morning, I'd wake up at like five in the morning to get out of there before they showed up. So, so I didn't want them to know I was living there. I'd drive to the YMCA to take my shower. Wow. And, and you know what's weird, Josh? I never once worked out while I was at the YMCA. Why I didn't at least get a good workout in, you know, like I, it wasn't about that. I took a shower in that horrible, you know, that awful place, drove, you know, stopped, would grab coffee, breakfast, and then I'd show up at work, you know, like an early riser, you know, right around seven yeah. o'clock, six forty-five. Wow, I'm Kevin's kidding. in early again, you know? And then I'd work till midnight, pull my pillow out of my filing cabinet, I had no customers, so I had no files, and I would just sleep under the desk until five in the morning. I did this for a year and then went bankrupt. <laughs> Wait, what was, what was that business? So the, the business, uh, it, it was called ASP. It was a software uh, company that we started trying to program. Like the, there was a, the, the very first Prices Right computer game for, oh. you know, back then, you know, desktop computers. We built it. We built that little Price is Right game. So it was a game company, but it was a disaster. And then we tried to, uh, this was the early days of PCs, Michael Delgazner. So we're like, oh, forget software. We're in the hardware business. Let's build some computers. And if there's a theme here, among many others, we had no focus, right? We didn't know what we were doing. We were 22. <laughs> we were 22 with no money and no connections. So I was like, hey, let's build a computer game. Oh, wow. They didn't pay their invoice. And now we're screwed out of the money. Oh, that stinks. Let's build computers. We hear every like some guy named Michael Dell's building computers. Let's try that. Oh, nobody's buying our computers. We like sold three of them. Let's try computer consulting. And we were install we were teaching lawyers how to put computers in their law office. Well, that totally stinks, right? So it's like tried all kinds of stuff. And at a year it was like, we give up. We give up. And uh, I, I, you know, my partner ended up like driving to California, like escaping from, from uh, New Jersey. And uh, I ended up getting a job, you know, for about a year, uh, just long enough to pay off the credit card debt. And then I started another company. So mm. <laughs> crazy times. What was your family 
thinking? What was your connection and relationship to your family at this point? You, you alluded to the lifestyle of your older sisters, sure. pick up where your father now went from, you know, the decline with the one-armed man. Yeah. Well, and, and that was uh, with, when that business um, went down and everything. So my sisters were older and they got out of the, you know, were, were out of the house doing whatever they were doing. And my dad got a, you know, having no money, got a job offer he couldn't refuse in New Jersey. So we moved from California to New Jersey mm -hmm. as I was going into my senior year of high school. That was another fun year. And then, um, so then out five years after that, I'm doing the business and pretty universally, everybody thought uh, that, that I was crazy. And I think, you know, my, my father wasn't so overt. Most of the people that I loved were overt, like, why are you doing it now? Or why don't you become a lawyer? Or like, like they, nobody got it. And, uh, and you know, my father, I think got it because he always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Like he, he knew where it came from and he could relate to it. I don't think he thought like, well, this is weird. Like, you know, what's he going to do? And, um, uh, and, and I was grateful because there was then for my third company, I guess it was my third company. There was a time where, uh, you know, he, he, I went to him for uh, you know some money uh, to help with the business at one point, and he gave it to me, and I paid it back. And I think he was surprised when that third company ended up selling it when I was thirty for a couple million bucks and all that. And I think he was surprised that it worked out that way. You know, um, I think he you know he did tell me that I had gotten lucky, uh, which didn't feel great mm -hmm. at the time that I heard it. Um, you know, I was, I've been able to do it a couple more times, so um, I might just be really really lucky. Um, but it, you know, he, he was definitely one of the more supportive people, you know, in his own way, um, seeing me do it. But it's even now, I mean, it's like, uh, with the newest business, I purposely put everything that I have accumulated to age, you know, while well, I started this one at 49 into it. And it's all at risk right now. And I mm. think, you know, my siblings, everybody are wondering like, well, why, why don't you just retire? Why don't you just enjoy life, but it's not, that's not what I want to do. Um, wow. so. so this, um, you, you sort of in passing said, yeah, I sold my third company for a couple mil. Eh, NBD. Right. Was that the, was that the first success quote unquote of the journal at age 10 that I'm going to have my own money? Was that yeah, yeah. Was that and, the realization and, and, of that? Yeah. So literally when I, when I started, you know, as an entrepreneur at age 22, I did the classic goal setting thing. And, um, I, I wrote that I, I will have a million dollars by age 30, you know, very specific time bound kind of thing. Now at the time, well, it was a lot, you know, a million dollars was worth more 30 years ago, but at the time coming from a place kind of lower middle class, I mean, I, you know, growing up, I didn't know, I, I never met anybody in the neighborhood that was like a doctor, a lawyer, a business person, you know? So to me, I thought, how can making a, having a million dollars not be enough, quote unquote. Right. And still today, that sounds kind of weird that a million isn't enough. But of course, <laughs> depending on your lifestyle and how, what you do, if you got a million dollars at age 30, it doesn't mean you retire and stop working, right? right? I didn't really realize what was going on. And while, Josh, here's the crazy thing, but I didn't understand it at that time. I achieved the goal. So age 30, sold the business for a couple million dollars. Great. High five. And yet, the biggest mistake was like having that goal so small and it being a fear-based goal. 
So remember, like, what was I doing? I was trying to defeat the one-armed man. Mm. Now, again, it's, it, I can understand that now. I didn't understand that then. And so that means you're waking up every morning at five o'clock in the morning and you're scared. You know, it's like I, have, I, I haven't achieved, like I don't have the armor and the weapons I need and I am at risk. Um, if you haven't yet achieved your goal and you don't know if you're, you feel like a failure until, because it's like, it's binary. I got the goal. I didn't get the goal. And so I got there, but it just about killed me and certainly had a huge negative impact on health and relationships. I mean, it was the only goal was financial and that put everything else at risk. And um, looking back, like I think if I had set perhaps a goal or at least uh, an intention, that's okay. But if I had balanced it with some other areas of my life, like giving back, relationships, health, I think I would have, it would have been a more enjoyable journey. And I think I would have gotten there faster. Mm. If I had been healthier, I would have been more strategic and creative. And maybe people would have wanted to be around me more. If I'd gotten more sleep, maybe I would have been better on those sales calls. Um, you know, all of these things, if I had come from a place of giving and making an impact, maybe I would have attracted better employees who would want to sign up for that journey. Not, I'm just going to get paid by this guy who's trying to become a millionaire. So, yeah. Yeah, I got the goal, but it was not fun and it was not, um, not the right way to do it. And isn't that ironic? Because on paper, the outsider might say, wow, that's amazing. I want that. So what's so intriguing is that this is called The Hidden Entrepreneur. And the, the, the way that came about is because I found myself hiding behind fear for all of these years and only recently was able to say, forget that, no more of that. I'm going to change things up. For you, talk a bit about what those years of quote unquote failure was like what they did to you and how you processed it. How did you get yourself through it? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I mean, the, the early years of literal failure, like the businesses made no money and then I finally shut them down when I couldn't borrow any more money somewhere. Um, it, it stunk, but I was so focused on that goal mm. that to me, I, I, it was always like, okay, this stinks. I'm going to have to save up some money and then try again. And then if that doesn't work, I'm going to try again. To me, there was like, I, I, I don't know what I would have done if I had turned 30 and not succeeded. Like it was, I was, there was only one path. I mean, there, I had burned all the other bridges. Um, now my partner at the time and others, I think had more of a, of a problem like peers, like, like failure, like admitting to people like, oh yeah, we just went out of business. Oh yeah, we don't have the office anymore or we failed. I've never really had a problem with telling other people that and I, you know, for whatever reason, but I think it was more, um, I mean, it, the failure, the more subtle failure was on the way to success from age 25 to 30. It just felt horrible every day, you know, depression and stress and emotional pain, just fighting to get to that finish line. Wow. It's like, you've got to get there. And it stinks. I'm in mile 20 of the marathon or whatever it is. I'm not a runner. So I should not use marathon <laughs> analogies. But, um, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it just stunk. But like, so I didn't have any good tricks. Like, oh, it was easy. I eat healthy and drink lots of water and get 10 hours of sleep. And then I got through. No, it just stunk. I mean, but I was 
so going to try that goal. I was just obsessed with it. There was nothing else I was going to do. So are you, um, I, I think I heard an age, you're, you're I'm, 49 or something? I'm, 50, I'm 51 right now, yeah. You're 51. So from 30 to current, are you as, as healthy and uh, appropriate for your own needs and goals as possible? Oh, well, yeah, I'm a totally different person now. I'm totally zenned out most of the time. I mean, uh, any startup will, will, you know, push some, push some buttons, uh, but it's, um, to me, it was when I sold, um, uh, I, I had sold a company about 10 years ago. And now that we talk about leadership. So there's, there's you know, self-leadership that I got at age 10 to 20, like, okay, now, and even to age 30, like it was pushing through and the hustle. Um, and it was only when I learned to lead at work that those businesses then started to, to take off. Interesting. Uh, but I'll tell you what I didn't think about. I wasn't thinking about leading in the wrong direction at home. And when I sold the last company, it was about 10 years ago. This is for the biggest amount ever from the previous ones. So this is, you know, like hitting the lottery, life-changing amount. Um, and when I had started that business, you know, my wife didn't want me to do it. And, and, you know, she's like, gosh, another one, like, you know, the hours, the stress, why are you putting at risk what we've saved? And she said, listen, I'll, I'll support you doing it. If you've got to come home every night at five o'clock to eat dinner with the kids, you got to sit down on the couch with me from nine to 11, because that's our time. Wow. You cannot work on the weekends, blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay. And then that's what we did. And then the day I sold the business, you know, you, you, you have a big powwow. I sign the papers. They wire money over into the account. I drive home and it's like, uh, so this is 10 years ago. And I say to my wife, say like, you know, it's, it's the big day, right? I'm like, I want to see that the money's in the account. So she pops open the laptop and she's looking down, dialing in at it. And there it is. I mean, it's like life-changing amount of money, millions of dollars. And, um, uh, I'm thinking like, oh, wow, it was, you know, five, it was took, that business was also five years before I sold it. And I'm like, all that work and the risk and the people that didn't want me to do it. This is awesome. It's like winning the lottery, but you feel like you deserve it. It wasn't just luck. And then she says, huh, I could take half, leave you tomorrow and never work another day the rest of my life. And then she laughed. And I thought, <laughs> I, I laughed, but then I'm like, it's just a weird joke to be thinking on a time like this. I'm sorry. So Josh, she said, I could take half. I could take half, leave you tomorrow and never work another day the rest of my life. Go ahead. Okay. And she chuckled. Six days later, she says, Hey, we got to start working on this marriage or we need to call it quits while we're young enough to find, you know, other people. Six months later, we were separated. Six months after that, she's engaged to the guitar player at church. So while I had mastered self-leadership, I had a lot of discipline. While I had mastered leadership at work, I built and sold several multi-million dollar companies. I didn't realize there's influence at home, right? Mm. And so how, now, I was there for dinner. She, remember she had her rules. Yes. You gotta be home for dinner. You gotta sit with me on the couch. No, no working on the weekends. And so I was following the rules. This is why part of why great leaders have no rules. I was following the rules, but when I was sitting on the couch and we're watching Dancing with the Stars or whatever, was, was I truly there? Physically, I was there on the couch. 
my mind is racing about all the things at work I still got to do and how much I resent sitting here on the couch watching Dancing with the Stars, right? Mm. Uh, when I wouldn't work all weekend and hang out with the family and everyone would go to bed at, you know, Sunday at 10 o'clock, I would work Sunday at 10 till Monday at eight because I had a lot of work to do. Mm. And so my health and other things were impacted. So I was, I didn't understand the problem with rules. She didn't either, obviously. And, um, uh, I was not leading for those prior five years now, but listen to this. So then we were, we get divorced. I'm now, uh, you know, single dad with three kids. And, um, now I understand the leadership is influence at home and, and I'm influencing my kids, you know, every day by what I do and by what I don't do, by what I say and by what I don't say. And when it comes to rules, now my kids are grown now, the two oldest are in college, my son's in high school. They're, they're uh, you know, they're angels, knock on wood. I mean, I, I'm very blessed, but I've never had a rule. They've never had a curfew. And the problem with rules is that every time I bump into a rule, uh, that you've put in place, it becomes your company, not my company. It becomes your household, not my household. Rules get in the way of conversation. Rules get in the way of relationship. Rules get in the way of shared values. So while I've never had a rule to my kids, like you have to be home by 10 p.m. as a teenager, whatever it is, what I would have is a conversation like, hey, I know you're going to this party tonight when do you want to come home? <laughs> well, dad, we're thinking about this time. And I would say, okay, well, listen, I'm asking because first of all, you know, I love you to death. I'm going to worry about you when you're out late. I'm not going to be able to sleep until you're home. And your brother's got a really early basketball game I need to get him to. So I have to get up early. So, and then they'll say, all right, we'll be home no later than 11. All right, fine. You know, whatever it is, it's a conversation that builds the relationship. Um, so that's where, like, but let's go back. You, you liked asking about childhood. So back when I was 10, right? So my sit, my dad had hard rules and most people had curfews. It's not like this is unusual, right? But most people have curfews for their kids and were raised with curfews. But here's the problem. It'd be, now I was younger. So it'd be my, my dad had a curfew of 10 o'clock for my sisters. Well, around 9.45, I'd see my dad starting to get agitated. <laughs> By 9.55, he's pacing and, and telling my mom he knows they're going to be late. It's already in his head. And then, sure enough, it's 10.05, and my sisters come strolling through the door, and now he's screaming at them. So what do they do? They lie. Oh, no, my watch says it's only 9.50. I didn't know. My watch was slow. So now they're either feeling guilty or they're feeling like liars, one or the other, and all of a sudden, what this is about is about power. It's about mm. respect. Mm. You, you know, you came home five minutes late. This is the household rule. You're not respecting me as your father. You're not, you're breaking the rule in their mind. It's, it's all about dad's, it's dad's house. It's dad's family. It's not theirs. Mm. And so look at the difference between a hard and fast rule that one person kind of puts into place that then puts everybody like, it's black and white. You're, you're, you've hit it or you're not hit it versus like shared values. You know, like guys, we think being out till 10 o'clock is late enough because you need sleep. We need sleep. Bad things happen after whatever it is. And then if someone comes home at 10.05, okay, it's good. It's close enough. Like it wasn't about the rule. It's about loving each other and supporting each other and ha having everybody safe at a reasonable hour. It's a whole different thing. And it's the same in the workplace uh, as well. Wow. So much here. Like I said, we could go on for uh, three episodes. <laughs> um, 
looking back, because as, as you perfectly pointed out, I like talking about childhood. Right. It gives me, it gives me a portal and an entrance into mine. Um, looking back on a version of your younger self, what advice would you give that person today? Well, it's exactly what we've been talking about. My advice would be, uh, you know, have, have the courage to be disliked. That if you are liked by everyone, it, it means you're not doing great things. If you, if you are doing anything that's different, there will be people that don't like you. If you are changing anything, changing the country, changing a business, changing a neighborhood, there will be some subset of the population that disagrees with that direction or that change. They're traditionalists. So if you don't have a segment of people that are your haters, you're not mixing it up enough. You're not doing great enough things. I didn't understand that and realize that your self-worth, you don't need everybody like you. You need like five people like you. Does, does your dog like you? Do your kids like you? Do, do uh, half of your family members like you? That's maybe a one best friend. That is enough. You don't need more than that inner circle to like you. That's a powerful soundbite. That rewind that previous sixty seconds. If you're listening to this, starting from have the courage to be disliked. I love that, and the whole concept of you only need a handful of people to like you. So valid, so powerful. Do you do you believe that everything happens for a reason? No. No. <laughs> Tell me more. I, I, I don't think there's any uh, divine hand guiding this stuff. I think that um, we have the power to add meaning and reason to things that have happened to us. And that is a big power, um, but it's our power. I don't think it's arbitrary or coming from another place. I love that. I agree with especially the part of it's our job to attach the meaning to any event. And that's in our complete control. It's a choice. It's a choice. Yeah. Uh, you sort of touched on this. The, uh, the segue is now, are you spiritual or religious in any ways? Um, uh, baptized Catholic, uh, for years been bringing the kids to the, the local, uh, Protestant church. So a little bit of a mix on that side. Uh, for me, it's, I feel more of a spiritual being, you know, even when I'm inside of a, of a church and, um, uh, if anything, getting more so in terms of just the practice of pausing, you know, at least once a day, hopefully more, and feeling in in at one with you know fellow uh, fellow man and and uh, nature and um, realizing that um, there's just a lot more to life and the universe than chasing the dollar. Mm. What do you believe happens when it's all over? When our time here on Earth comes to an end? I I don't know what happens. If I had to guess, is that nothing happens and that uh, I'm buried six feet down uh, and I, I'm not expecting anything to happen after that point. If it does, it's a bonus. <laughs> wow. All right. Well, I will leave you with this final question. Kevin Cruz, how would you like to be remembered? Uh, I just hope uh, that people remember me that, you know, I, I helped a few, few other people out along the way. Uh, that that's really it. I'm just trying to, um, help others who want to achieve their potential 
to give them a little bit of hope, give them a little bit of advice or, or helping hand. Uh, I, I wake up every morning and, and reflect on my personal mission and I hope I make a difference in one person's life each day. Um, whether or not I do every day, I, I don't know, but that's my goal. Well, you can check off today because personally, you've made a difference in my life. Absolutely. We could not part ways um, ending on the theme of leadership. You are wearing the shirt of your current business. It is Lead X. Tell us about that. It's an artificial intelligence company. Where are we going? <laughs> So, you know, there's lots of ways to learn about leadership, become a better leader. Hopefully a book is a starting point, but the most effective is having a coach, having a, a, an executive coach to help you develop. The problem for a lot of people is that a good executive coach can be quite expensive. So at LeadX, we um, created the first digital executive coach built with IBM Watson artificial intelligence. So now anybody that's got an iPhone or an Android phone can download an app and, uh, get their personality diagnosed, get some um, training on how to be a great manager, how to give feedback, how to be a better leader uh, through what we call Coach Amanda, but it's really the Watson powering it in the background. Wow. And um, how long has it been up and running? Uh, this is our third year. We're in our third year. Oh, wow. All right. Well, all the best to you. And certainly, thank you, Kevin Cruz, for joining us today. Spectacular, fascinating human being. <laughs> Josh, this is my pleasure. I do a lot of these and this was a great conversation. You, you made it special. I appreciate it. Likewise. And I certainly appreciate everybody tuned in today, whether the live broadcast or the replay. Thank you for spending your time. It means everything. If you got anything out of this, don't keep it to yourself. Take one small action, one step forward and do something. Put something good for yourself and for others into the world. We're going to try to do the same with another episode not too far behind. Until we do, thank you for tuning in. Go get them. Thanks for listening to The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Make sure to subscribe through iTunes or Google Play so you can get notified every time we publish a new episode. And we'd love to hear your thoughts with an honest review on iTunes. Finally, follow us on your favorite social media platforms to keep the conversation going with Josh Carey and today's guest. Until next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.